When earth trembles and mountains slip into the heart of the sea, when waters foam and nations churn, there remains one place of peace and joy. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 46 verse 4. Theopolis will always focus our energies on that city, the church. There, the Lord is our stronghold. There, the Lord declares He is God and He will be exalted among the nations. Please today consider supporting our work. We hope to add 25 new Theopolis partners before the end of 2022. To become a Theopolis partner, you need to donate at least $500 in a one-time gift or $50 per month. And there's a link to give in the show notes. As a partner, you'll receive a weekly newsletter from Peter Lightheart called The Theopolitan, which contains weekly biblical reflections, theological discussions, analysis of current events, reviews of recent novels and books of poetry, and much more. So become a partner today. Help us continue to provide scaffolding to refurbish the city of God. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our walk through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and in this discussion, the team will be covering the chapter on trees and thorns. As always, we invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. We just started a new video series on our YouTube channel, walking through the book Theopolitan Liturgy by Peter Lightheart, and we just wrapped up his walkthroughs of Theopolitan reading and the Theopolitan vision. Also be aware that coming up in the month of March, Lightheart will be teaching an intensive course on the theology of Paul, and for dates and more information about that class, there's a link in the notes for you. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Three New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Brian Motes is in the background, uh, making sure that everything works well, that uh, we don't have any awkward pauses in our connection, and he'll be uh, smoothing it out and editing it, presenting it to you, our audience. We're in the middle of a series going through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. And uh, this has been a major important text for a number of us. It's, it's been a, kind of an ur text for Theopolis. It's the, the background of all the biblical work that we do. And so we're going chapter by chapter through the book and summarizing the chapter and also discussing some of the implications of what Jim uh, gives in these chapters. This week, we're talking about chapter seven, which is entitled Trees and Thorns. And you could say that this is a chapter on biblical botany. It's talking about the symbolism of plants, of which the Bible is full, trees, vines, flowers, thorn bushes, varieties of trees, and so on. And there's a there's a rich and complex network of symbols that, that have to do with plants. Trees and Thorns, I should add, is the title of a separate book that uh, James Jordan wrote. Uh, over a number of years, he wrote a weekly fundraising essay that was a, a thank you to his donors, where he was going slowly through Genesis 2 and 3. And then he compiled those reflections into a book that was published by Athanasius Press a few years ago under the title Trees and Thorns. So that includes some additional reflections on the symbolism of trees. The book is more the book has a more general, more general purpose. It's going through the he he had written a book on Genesis 1 and he was writing on working slowly through the following two chapters. So trees and thorns are 
important part of biblical imagery. I, I wanted to highlight a couple of things that uh, that are either implied by what uh, Jim says in this chapter or things that I wanted to add to that. The first is that, as Jim indicates, the analogies that he's highlighting, that the Bible highlights, are analogies that are built into the creation. These are not analogies. These are not metaphors that are projected by the human mind. It's not that we detect some analogy between a tree and a human being, and we start spinning out analogies, and that's all coming from our imagination. Instead, those analogies are actually built into the way God made the world. The world, as Jim emphasized at the beginning of the book, is entirely symbolic. The whole creation exists in order to manifest and reveal the glory of God. Uh, it, ref- it reflects God's glory in particular ways. Particular creatures reflect God's glory in particular ways. And we see um, especially the analogies between plants and human beings in Genesis 1, that those analogies are evident in the way that the creation account describes the creation of plants and human beings. One analogy is the fact that plants are the first things that come up from the earth on day three, after the Lord has separated the land and the sea, he's caused the land to rise up and the sea to fall into its place. Now you have a distinction on earth between land and sea. In the second half of day three, God calls on earth to produce plants. So the first things that come up from the earth are plants. And then later in the week, when we get to the end of the week, uh, day six, the earth is filled not just with plants, but it's filled with animals, which are drawn up from drawn from the earth. Uh, God again talks to the earth and calls the earth to produce animals. And then in Genesis 2, when God creates man, he man, makes man from the dust of the ground. So the first thing that comes from the ground are plants, and then animals and human beings are made in a sense, after the analogy of plants, because both of them are coming up from the earth, both of them also come up from the all three of the all three uh, rather come up from the earth and are intended to be fruitful. So God causes certain plants to come up from the ground, plants uh, the grasses with seed in them, and that uh, trees with fruit that has seed in it. And the first fruitful things that we see on the earth are plants. And then when God creates animals, animals are created to be fruitful. And then man is given the particular commission to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. But again, the first fruitful things are plants. So we, we have these the analogies between plants coming from the ground, animals and man coming from the ground, plants being fruitful, animals and man being fruitful. Those are indicated, that's, those analogies are indicated already in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, they show that God has built these analogies into the creation. One other thing I wanted to add before we get into the specifics of the chapter, and that is, uh, well, I think one of the benefits of Through New Eyes is the way that it illumines passages, that even passages that, that Jim doesn't address directly. The value is not just in getting this network of symbols that so we have a framework to work in, but that the way that that framework helps us to grasp what's going on in particular passages. And, and one of the things that it helps us see is that some of the imagery of scripture that we might think of as being just kind of odd and just kind of out of left field, as it were, fits into a, an overall overall set of, uh, overall pattern of imagery. And one example I thought of, uh, I don't think that Jim mentions this in, in either this chapter or the next, but it's he mentions some things that, that I think illuminate this passage. I'm, I'm thinking of Psalm 84, right at the beginning of Psalm 84, uh, the psalmist says, uh, how lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My, my soul longed even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy for the living God. The bird is found a house and the swallow a nest for herself, 
where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts. That's an odd image in verse three. Uh, The birds find a house in the courts of the Lord. The swallow makes a nest in the vicinity of the altars of God. I mean, it's almost like um, there's an implied critique that the the, the temple should be more careful in trying to eliminate birds from the the temple. Uh, But I think that what Jim says about trees and and, uh, and the relationship between trees and animals helps illuminate that. He points to a number of passages where trees are not just symbols of human beings, but trees become symbols of powerful human beings that represent and, and lead empires. Daniel 4, the, the tree that represents Nebuchadnezzar and his empire, the uh, mustard seed that goes into the ground is the smallest seed and then grows up into a great herb. And in both of those cases, we have trees that become homes for birds and for animals. So the tree is the tree image is linked up with linked up with animals and birds. And then the additional transformation that he talks about is the fact that the, the temple itself, although it's made of stone, it's lined on the inside with wood, with cedar wood. And so if you walk into the if you walked into the temple, the aroma of cedar would be around you. It would be what like walking into a grove. The grove has been glorified because there's gold on the on the uh, on the walls. But you're walking into a glorified grove of trees. So it's natural for the birds to be in amidst the tree that is the temple. And then you have this series of associations with the the tree, the natural tree, the tree that we see outside with the woodpeckers and the bluebirds and the squirrels living in it. Uh, That's analogous to an imperial tree, which is a great empire ruled by a great emperor uh, who houses many different nations and peoples, gives them shade, provides them with food and so on. Uh, And then the temple as another variation on that same symbol, the temple as tree or the temple as the empire. So when we we read Psalm 84 and see the swallows and the birds making a nest in the house of the Lord, uh, that associates with this tree imagery uh, and suggests that the temple is like the tree, uh, becomes a home and a, and a place of nourishment, a place of refuge, a, a source of food uh, for the nations. It's an image of the Gentiles finding their home in the house or the tree of the Lord, the tree house of the Lord, which is the temple. So again, that's uh, just an, one illustration. Of, uh, we could we'll, we'll come up with others, I'm sure, as we go through the the episode today and next week. But uh, one example of how the symbolic way that Jim teaches us to think in this book helps us to grasp uh, the depths of certain passages that we might uh, might skip over or just think of as kind of odd imagery. And in some cases, it is assumed almost by the passage that we're reading that we understand the imagery that it's working in terms of. So when we're reading Zechariah and it talks about the wooded dell with the myrtle trees, it doesn't really explain what that means. But we're presumed to have the background knowledge of the symbolism to be able to understand that this is an image of Israel. It's an image um, maybe drawing upon imagery of the temple. Israel is in a sunken position. Um, but then later on, we'll see the um, chariots that are described there or the horsemen coming out from between two great mountains. Now, all of that image imagery is bound up with the temple. It's bound up with images of Israel. But unless you have this sort of vocabulary and this understanding of how the symbolism is working, you'll just be lost when you come to such passages. And the fact that there is this assumption that we should be able to understand this imagery I think is a good indication that what Jim is doing is just fundamental for biblical comprehension. 
Yeah, just to give a kind of novice's perspective on this chapter, because this is my first time through the book, and it's one that I think kind of fits in with what you guys have been saying. This is probably the first chapter where I just felt quite overloaded um, by the contents of it. Um, suddenly, trees were kind of the first thing out from the earth, which was fine. And then they were um, pictures of people and of um, kings and of bushes and of Sinai and of all sorts of and ladders and all sorts of other things. And it, it suddenly felt like a, a huge load of stuff. And um, and that's fine. You know, I'm happy to sort of let that sit for a while. Um, you know, my first degree was maths and philosophy. If every time I came to a chapter in a maths or philosophy textbook and read it through once and said, oh, that seems a bit much. Um, I, I'm not going to spend any more time with that. And I wouldn't have got very far, you know. So um, it actually makes sense to me that this might have um, blossomed into a book um, at some point in, in the future because it, it's felt incredibly dense to me. So that's just a um, uh, kind of novice perspective for whatever it's worth. In my experience, reading through chapters like this, as you say, it can feel very dense at first. And then you start to explore the text of scripture. And again and again, you find the insights confirmed, as Peter said, in places where it's not explicitly dealt with here. So you have the idea of the tree as a ladder, for instance, in um, Song of Songs with the lover climbing the beloved, as it were, like a palm tree. And that sort of imagery is something that's fairly familiar and crops up on many occasions. Jim gives a number of examples here, but there is a lot more out there that, as you look around, confirms what he's seeing. I think one of the most important passages in thinking about trees is the almost programmatic first psalm, which talks about the righteous man as like a tree planted by streams of waters, that yields its fruit in its season. And as we go through scripture, we'll see that imagery used on several occasions in different contexts. The righteous man is firmly rooted. They're drawing the moisture and the nourishment from the law. They're firmly secure against all the winds and gales and all the things that might assault them. And then they're bearing much fruit. And so all of those different aspects of symbolism are ones that are explored in, in various contexts. I think we see the same sort of thing in the way that we might think about the Lord planting a field of wheat that gives grain. And we see a cluster of images that arise from that because it leads into things like the harvest or it leads to the discussion of the movement from in different stages of growth. Or you might think about the mixture of um, false crops among the true. Or you might think about the way that that grain will ultimately be gathered, separated from the chaff, or the way that it is used to form bread and the way that that bread functions. In all of these ways, you have a, a root image that is gradually expanded and the imagery has its own sort of fruit. And when we're talking about trees, one of the things I find very helpful here is the way that that imagery can be um functioning in many different levels. You might think about the tree in terms of its roots. You might think about in terms of the processes of its growth. You might think about in terms of the outstretch of its um, branches, or you might think about the way in which it reach, reaches up toward the heaven is one of the tallest things that you would see on any horizon in the ancient world. 
in all of these ways, we have something that is a very condensed image that can be explored in all these different directions. And I think Jim's discussion of it is incredibly helpful to show the different connotations that these images can have and the way in which it's not merely a a code approach to biblical symbolism, this means that, but is a dense cluster of realities that we can move between as we're following the leading of the text and its deployment of particular symbols. So the relationship between the trees and the temple or the tabernacle, it's quite natural when you start to explore it. Um, Initially, you think there are a lot of trees used in the construction of these things. And then you expand on the symbolism and it just unfurls and it develops in a lot of other ways. And so that's one of the things that I think people that tarry with the images of this chapter and other chapters within this book will find, that initially it feels like almost an information dump. But as you give it time, um, you'll find it really unlocks a lot of things about scripture, helps us to understand the web of connotations that these images can have. And the whole scripture starts to be seen in its lively um, matrix of interrelations. And the symbolism is just seen to be charged with a power that often we miss as modern readers. Yeah, it's an interesting comment you make, James. Uh, I, I, I do think that this, this, is a, uh, this is kind of an acceleration. This chapter is an acceleration of the work that Jim is doing in the book. Uh, and I think a couple of different reasons for that. I think one is the, the way that he's beginning to show, this is related to what Alistair was just saying, beginning to show how uh, you have transformations of symbolism. So you have uh, a, an object in the world that has different features. And so that object in the world can signify different sets of, can enter into different sets of relationships. Um, you, know, you have a tree that is both good for food. It is uh, a shelter for animals and birds. It's a uh, physically, it starts from the ground and reaches up to the sky. So there's a there's a verticality to it that associates it with human posture, uh, and with the with the duality of heaven and earth that's part of the basic biblical world picture. So the same the same object in the world has these different associations that can um, that that uh, move off in different directions. And then I think also the the fact that um, uh, that those objects in the world are used in so many different in so many different ways. One of the things that Jim does when I when I was talking about the temple as a tree earlier, obviously it's not a tree because uh, it's been it has wood that uh, lines the interior of the temple and the furnishings are made from wood uh, overlaid with gold at least in many cases. Um, uh, so it's all transformed wood. So that's uh, that that creates another branch of symbolism for. The tree. It's no longer just a tree. It's a source of lumber, and lumber becomes a source of construction. So things made of wood become extensions of the symbolism of a tree. So I think that I think that's p- part of the part of it is just the richness of the reality of plants. I was reading a <laughs> uh, looking at a recent book called Vegetal Sex uh, in the last uh, few weeks, and uh, this is a philosophical reflection. I didn't know that there were philosophers of plants, but apparently plant philosophy is a kind of uh, sub-discipline sub within philosophy. Uh, and uh, this was particularly devoted to looking at the question of how 
what what do we mean when we say that plants have sex, that they have male and female parts, or that there's some kind something analogous to animal sex or human sex that's going on in the reproduction of fruit in in a, in a tree, for example. So she's reflecting philosophically on that and makes the point early on, she's kind of a plant advocate, not just a philosopher, but a plant advocate, makes the point early on that plants are not, not uh, uh, plants are uh, not given serious attention. Uh, they're given serious scientific attention, but they're not given serious attention uh, as a philosophical issue or uh, to put in our terms as a theological issue. And I, I, I think that's true. I mean, you, you could read pages and pages and pages of, Christian theology and never, never uh, see a, any extended reflection on plants. Of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, are going to come up in a discussion of the fall. But typically, that's not going to be a discussion of their character as plants or as food. It's going to be a discussion of a command and sin and disobedience and um, curse and so on. The effects of sin and the plantness of the plant is is lost in the shuffle. Um, but once you start, once you sit back and think about uh, the what the Bible actually contains, you realize how extensive, uh, how per- pervasive plants are in the Bible. So this is another reason why I think this this chapter is particularly dense. It's just there's so much material about plants in the Bible. I often refer to this memorable class that I had in seminary. Uh, one of the most men- memorable lecture sessions I ever had from Vern Poitras. He was teaching a hermeneutics class. And he was uh, ma- he was illustrating his principle that any particular biblical theme can be used as a window for the whole canon. We can we can say the Bible is about virtually anything, and he illustrated by saying the Bible is about plants. And uh, once you start thinking like that, then it's easy to make the case. Uh, creation involves plants. At the center of the garden, the garden is a planted area with two trees in the center, and those two trees are central to human destiny. Human sin takes place at a plant. Uh, one of the curses is that thorns and thistles will come up. Uh, the, the the promise to Abraham is that he'll enter a uh, enter a land that flows with milk and honey, and also is full of vines and uh, olive trees and other sorts of plants. It's a it's a fruitful land. Uh, the the judgments in the Bible are described as a desolation of plant life. The restorations in the Bible are, are described as the rose blossoming in the wilderness. The wilderness becoming like a forest. Uh, the destination of humanity is a garden city that has the tree of life growing by the sides of the river of life. So the, the entire Bible can be told through the lens of plants. Um, you could do that with uh, virtually any other theme of the Bible, but it's it, uh, there's there's just so much about plants, and especially when you extend it in the ways I've been talking about. You, you don't just think of plants in their natural state, but you think of plants in their culturally transformed conditions as buildings or as not just as the grain that comes from a, a, a from a grain plant, but the various transformations of that, and then it just proliferates. And a great deal of the Bible is encompassed by um, this b- botanical uh, imagery. Yeah, Peter, I, I was struck by that, or by something similar to it, as I was thinking about this chapter today. Which is, we're often in the habit, I think, of reading a, a claim about Scripture and wanting to come to a snap judgment about it about whether it's correct or not and yet if we just think about the complexity of the world of creation and what god has made the kind of detail of molecular movements and structures and the way in which they affect the nature of certain materials and affect the atmosphere and and affect kind of cosmic just the 
the kind of interconnectedness and complexity of creation is just utterly unfathomable. And and so, kind of in a sense, why wouldn't you expect God to have built in similar complexity to to His Word? Um, I mean, obviously there are going to be limits to that, but it, it seems that we should err on that side to to err on the side of thinking, yeah, that that, that might be here. I mean, as you were talking about just swallows, for instance, um, at the start of the uh, uh, start of this week, I, I was thinking like the word for swallow. You, you were linking it to the temple and so on has so much to it, like uh, um, a, a swallow in, in Hebrews, uh, and that is the word for um, myrrh. It's used in, I think, Exodus 29, where it's talking about the uh, the oil used for anointing the uh, uh, the priests. And, and so there's, um, and various things in the tabernacle. So there, there is kind of a, a sense in which via wordplay, uh, you, you can have a, a sparrow in kind of priestly, Things and and Deror is also the word for um, liberty, for the proclamation of the um, liberty, the year of jubilee, which at the climax of um, Ezekiel, is it chapter um, forty six? Maybe is proclaimed in the temple. You know, um, liberty is, is proclaimed from the temple courtyards out into the world. And and as I was going through the chapter, I was seeing so much of of, of that, like um, Jim likens the um, the bush, the thorn bush on Mount um, Horeb to Sinai. Um, and again, this kind of word play that associates um, those two things, like a snake, a, a thorn bush, and Sinai, the, the, um, uh, the uh, Mount Sinai, you know. And um, I, I just think this richness is is everywhere, really. Earlier this week, I was looking at um, the passage in Mark 8, where Jesus heals the blind man, blind man in Bethsaida and spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. And then the man initially sees just people like trees walking. And then he's um, in a second act, he's completely healed. And it seemed to me that this is a great example of how Jim's approach can really open up a text. Um, when you look at that passage, it's just a very odd passage. For most people, it's the question, why doesn't Jesus' healing take at first? Why doesn't it work? Um, it seems that if he's going to heal this man, he would heal him instantaneously. Why does he take him outside of the village? Why does he do this strange act of spitting on his eyes? Um, and why doesn't it work at first? And I was listening to a series on Revelation by Warren Gage, which I very highly recommend to people. Um, he referenced your work, Peter, and commended it to other people. But when you look at this passage, he says, you need to recognize that this is a symbolic enacting of what Jesus would experience. He would be led outside of the city and he would be spat upon. His eyes will be covered. Um, and he's performing this upon the man that he's going to heal. But there's a two-stage healing. And in the immediate context, you have this question of why are the disciples seeing but not perceiving? Why don't they understand? That's the immediately preceding pericope. And then immediately afterwards, you have this reference to um, the witness of Peter to Jesus' true identity. And then the calling to people to follow after Christ, take up their cross and follow him. And it seemed to me that this is the real key. What looks like people who are trees walking, nothing so much as men carrying their cross and following Christ. 
And so in the original immediate context, you have something of that arboreal imagery and its connection with persons being a key to understanding a very peculiar passage where Jesus is enacting something of his own crucifixion upon this man that he's healing. And then this man in this two-stage healing, as his perception is opened up, just as the disciples' perception has only half been opened up, but will later be more fully opened up, they need to take up their cross and become like men who are trees walking, following Christ. And then as they enter into his, into union with his death, they'll experience the full opening up of their eyes. And in many such passages, I think you'll find that Jim's insights just give you a key to unlock things that would otherwise be very, very difficult to understand. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating here. Yeah, on that passage, uh, we uh, we posted an essay in August of this year by Jackson Shepard, who's a, a master's student at Duke University, called "The Land of the Walking Trees," and he draws the same conclusion uh, that that's he's connecting it to the uh, exhortation to take up the cross. And uh, so that yeah, uh, if if anyone wants to follow up, uh, "The Land of Walking Trees" by Jackson Shepard is up on our website. I want to go back to something that um, Alistair said about Psalm one. A couple of things about Psalm one is one is to reinforce the idea that the uh, what what we're looking at is typically a set of items, a set of things in the world rather than one isolated thing. You can have you think what does a tree symbolize? Well, trees are rarely by themselves, so typically you don't have trees that are just isolated items in the world symbolizing thing. Trees in certain kinds of situations and relationships. Uh, the trees that have animal birds. Uh, the other thing that I want to point about Psalm one is the fact that you actually have two different plants items that are that are uh, that are included. Uh, you start out with the image of the tree. The righteous man is like a tree, a bearing fruit. His leaf doesn't wither. But then at the end of the end of the another kind of plant product, the chaff that's blown away by the wind. And so the meaning of the tree image is partly determined by this contrast with other, with another sort of plant image, the the detritus, the the leftovers of of uh, uh, winnowing and uh, preparing grain for flour, and and that that's often the case. I think it's important that um, highlight what one of the things that Jim does regularly that uh, I think people miss. They think of Jim as kind of this free free association symbolic interpreter. But a lot of what he does depends on looking very carefully at the actual words that are on the page and thinking very carefully about the literal sense. For example, in Genesis 1, uh, day 3, God calls plants from the earth. But Jim points out that there are very specific terms. There's vegetation, which is a category for, for plant life. And then there's grasses that produce seed. And then there are trees that produce fruit with seed in it. So the two specific kinds of plants that are mentioned in, uh, as part of the creation of day three are grain plants, grain grasses, and fruit trees, which helps to harmonize the day three with what's going on in Genesis 2. That's a point that Jim makes in various places. But it also helps us to isolate specific the specific symbolism that's going on there because uh, grain and fruit, those are the, the root realities of bread and wine which obviously ultimately become sacramental images, sacramental realities. The grain and the fruit trees are part of the promise of the land. 
but that is a promise of the land because I mean, part, uh, part of the significance of that is that the promise of the land filled with grain and fruit trees or vines is a promise of new creation. And it's a promise of the land that will produce the kind of sacramental food, the kind of sacrificial food of bread and wine that you would use in the tabernacle and the temple. So, uh, and, and Jim does this all the way through the chapter. He's talking about specific kinds of trees, for example, that are associated with different stages of Israel's history. Abraham is around terebinth trees all the time. And when you get to the Davidic covenant, uh, the temple is lined with cedar, and they import cedar from Lebanon down to, to build the temple. And there's an associate with, with the cedar tree. Those aren't, those aren't absolutely clean dis- distinctions, but there's a, a particular kind of tree gets highlighted that is associated with a particular stage of Israel's life. And that particular tree has certain features that make it an appropriate tree for that particular stage of Israel's life. So it's important to see the variations of the symbolism of plants and not, not just put it under a generic symbolism of plants are fruitful things that, that come from the ground. And, but there are various variations of that and they, they function in different kinds of settings in the Bible. I also want to go back to one of the, one of the comments that uh, James made about um, the various transformations of symbolism that you have. Jim spends a good bit of time talking about the burning bush as a one of the kind of key, one of the, with foundational events in a pattern of event where God manifests himself at trees. And as James said, you have this these various transformations because you have a plant with a fire in the midst of it that burns that does not consume the plant. In one sense, that is a symbol of what's happening to Israel because they're in the midst of the fire of exile. It's, it's kind of like the, the uh, fiery furnace image in Daniel. They're in the midst of uh, a, a sojourn in Egypt. They're under threat from Pharaoh. They're being oppressed. There's this fire of oppression coming on them, and yet they are not consumed. So they are the burning bush. But that image is also transformed into, as, as James mentioned, Sinai. You have a mountain uh, with trees on it, with a, with a, with a, uh, a burning cloud at the top. The burning cloud eventually comes down and settles into the tabernacle, which is, um, it's a tent, but it has a wood frame and it has wooden walls, wooden walls that are overlaid with gold, wooden furnishings. Uh, so you have the tabernacle as a kind of burning bush. You have the golden lampstand, which is formed like a tree. Uh, all of the terms that are used to describe the, the lampstand are arboreal terms. It has uh, a, it has a, a reed coming up in the center. It has branches. It has buds at the end. Um, so it's it's formed like a tree, but it's burning. So the the the, uh, uh, the lampstand is like a, a permanent burning bush that Israel carries from place to place. It the place where this uh, the lampstand stands is holy ground, just as the place where the burning bush, where God was present in the bush, that was holy ground. He's present as the burning presence of the glory inside the wooden tabernacle uh, that consecrates the tabernacle as holy ground. So you have these these various transformations of the burning bush that, uh, 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 again, uh, Jim puts us under the heading of God being manifest at trees. Uh, ultimately, that starts back in the garden, but uh, is particularly comes out in the burning bush and the various transformations of the burning bush. It's also worth paying attention to some of the specific trees that are mentioned within the stories, not just um, a particular type of tree, but very specific trees. So you might think about the 70 palms and 12 um, springs mentioned at Elim. 
It's mentioned in the book of Exodus. It's also mentioned in recalling the journey in the book of Numbers in chapter 33. And the number of those palms, there are 70, is given significance. Or we might think about the very specific um, tree at Shechem that's mentioned in the story of um, Genesis chapter 35, but also at the very end of the book of Joshua, where things are buried beneath this tree. There's a particular association of this tree with um, events in Israel's history. And so there are particular trees, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, that occur at various points. And they are landmarks in a situation where there's not uh, um, a stable built environment, but the trees themselves can provide landmarks, or they might be playing some very particular part within the story, like the tree of life, um, which man is barred from as a result of the fall, but then man gains access to in the new creation. And so these sorts of images are not just types of trees, but also very specific trees. We can think about the ways that trees function within key stories. You might think about the story of the um, bitter waters at Mara and the cleansing of those waters. There are ways in which we can um, see the significance of trees through the lens of these stories. And it might help us to understand stories that we don't necessarily think of in terms of the arboreal imagery in terms of that. So we think about the cross as the tree, and yet we don't play enough and explore enough what that imagery is actually bearing. The tree is something more than just the instrument that happened to be used for the crucifixion. It's something that is associated with a lot of different images. Christ is, as it were, the fruit placed back on the tree from which the fruit was taken. Or you might think about the cross as the tree of life. The cross is that which lifts things up and holds them between heaven and earth. There are ways in which we can think about the cross as a ladder. We can think about the cross as um, the way in which Christ is enthroned um, in John. And in all of these different ways, that symbolism enables us to read an event that's very familiar, that familiar imagery that we use in terms of that event. The cross is the most familiar image in the Christian faith. And yet we don't explore enough the fact that it is a tree, that it's a carpenter who's hung upon this tree. And all these other forms of connections that if we're paying attention to the biblical symbolism will just jump out at us. Yeah, that's a, um, the cross is a good example. The way Jim describes it in the chapter is a good example of the, again, the variations and the transformations of symbolism in the, under the heading of ladders to heaven, he talks not only about trees, but also about altars, which are often placed in a, uh, under or with trees. Um, uh, Abraham sets up altars in oases in association with terebinth trees. So you have an altar that is an, a, uh, a kind of small mountain associated with the tree that rises above it. So you have that association between different sorts of trees, uh, different sorts of ladders to heaven, the altar and the, and the, and the tree together. And then the cross brings those together. So it, as you say, it's not, it's not an accident that the cross becomes the ultimate altar where the ultimate sacrifice is placed. That's, that association of altar and tree is already built into the way the Old Testament 
describes the two together. Yeah, and the connection with authority is surely important as well. Is it later in this um, chapter? It must be where Jimmy's talking about how uh, Deborah um, reigns, or not reigns, uh, judges from under a tree and uh, Saul sets up base under a tree. And we, I think we can legitimately see the, the cross as, as this very kind of central um, tower-like centre of, of authority. Um, Ezekiel speaks about Israel in, in the, as being in the centre of the nations and, and there outside its capital is, is this tree, therefore, on which is written um, Aramaic, Greek and Latin, you know, which surely then has this sense of, of reclaiming authority over nations. And, and, and so many details, I think, of the crucifixion scene can be kind of uh, viewed in multiple perspectives like that. I want to call attention, too, to one of the specific passages that Jim talks about, which is the last chapter of the book of Jonah, uh, this odd last chapter where Jonah is unhappy that the Lord has spared Nineveh, and he goes outside the city, and he uh, is, the, the, sun is, the sun is bearing down on him, and the Lord graciously provides a plant to provide shade. And Jim connects that with the different uh, imagery, the, the imagery of imperial trees that you have in Daniel, in Ezekiel, and in some other places uh, where the, the tree of the empire, the tree of the emperor provides shade and protection for those who come under his rule. And it fits the context of Jonah because Jonah is preaching to Nineveh, which is going to become the, it's not yet, Assyria, Assyria is not yet the empire that it will become, but Nineveh will become the the capital city of an expanding empire that will eventually take over the Northern Kingdom, which is where Jonah is from. So the plant providing shade is an image of an imperial tree. And then Jim Jim points out that what kills the kills the plant is this worm that burrows into it and causes it to wither, which is a kind of allegory, he suggests, of the history of Nineveh and Assyria, because you have um Nineveh can uh, Nineveh converts, the king of the king of Nineveh at the time of Jonah's preaching repents. Uh, all of the people of Nineveh repent in sackcloth and ashes. Even the animals repent, and the whole city is spared. Uh, and there's a they respond in some way to the news that uh, uh, to the warning that um, that uh, Jonah brings. And so they're a I think we can use the term converted. They're a converted Gentile city, but then something gnaws at the roots of that. There's a kind of serpent attack, serpentine attack on Assyria and Assyria, and Nineveh turn against the Lord and uh, become an oppressive and vicious nation rather than a protective nation to Israel. So again, it's the connecting that one particular story, that one particular episode with other image with other sorts of plant imagery, but also recognizing that that plant is not isolated from other sorts of things and the the role of the the worm that uh, that burrows into and and makes the plant wither and uh, Jonah's relationship to the plant, all those are part of the significance of that story. The, the, chap, the chapter we've been discussing is called Trees and Thorns. We spent almost all our time talking about trees and many of the, many of the positive association of trees and plants in the Bible. Trees are good for food. Trees are delightful to the eyes. Uh, trees provide shade and shelter for animals. A collection of trees symbolizes a human society. And a collection of trees is, is cut down and transformed. It uh, becomes, a, becomes a building, a temple, or a city. But one of the things that Jim is pointing out is that uh, there are 
there's a whole range of imagery in the Bible that is n- about plants that are not nice, that are not productive, trees that are not beautiful, trees that don't provide shade, trees that don't provide fruit. That's the curse uh, on the ground uh, after the after the sin of Adam. Uh, the ground is not going to just produce grains and fruit trees, but it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are uh, low to the ground. Thorns and thistles don't produce anything useful. Some some thorns thorn bushes produce certain kinds of fruit, but it's fruit that you get only at the cost of getting scratches on your hands and your forearms. Uh, so there's there's pain associated with the with the recovery of that fruit, and then you have, just have thorn trees that are just thorn trees that produce nothing useful. Uh, that imagery gets taken up uh, in contrast to the image of productive and fruitful plants. The, Judges nine is one of the key places where this happens. Uh, you have the parable of Jotham, and he's talking about the situation with uh, with Abimelech. And he describes how he gives an allegory of the trees looking for a king. All the productive trees and plants are busy producing fruit. Uh, and Abimelech is that bramble bush that's going to bring pain and destruction to Israel. Bramble bushes are also associated with their brittle and their good fuel. So there's several passages where fire burns through or burns, uh, 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 fires start in thorn bushes and spread. That's what's going to happen with Abimelech. Literally, that's going to happen. There's going to be a great conflagration that he that he causes, in addition to the symbolic conflagration. So um, you have this you have this whole this whole range of negative associations with plants. Uh, you have uh, plants that are not productive. You have plants that are productive but don't produce good fruit. Um, the vineyard in Isaiah five. The vineyard is Israel, and the Lord planted the vineyard. The Lord protected the vineyard. The Lord set up a wall around the vineyard. He brought the vin- he brought this vine from Egypt and he planted it in the land, and it's supposed to produce good fruit. Uh, instead, it produces the fruit of injustice and the fruit of uh, oppression of the poor and all the sins that uh, Isaiah is detailing at the beginning of his prophecy. Uh, and the, a, a series of puns. Um, the Lord is looking for righteousness and justice, but then what he finds is bitter fruit in the in the Hebrew. The I don't remember the Hebrew terms. I'm sure James could help, but the, the, there's a pun on what the Lord is expecting and what the the plant actually produces. So in a world of sin, plants represent not just good people and fruitful people and productive people. They don't just represent and manifest the glory of God, but they also are agents of God's curse. Uh, And specifically, the plants uh, that are agents of God's curse represent people. The first thorn and thistle that emerges is, is the first time we see a thorn and thistle is not a plant, but rather uh, Cain. Uh, the first murderer, uh, who is a a, a a bramble person, who uh, causes harm to people, and so you have you have that that whole range of symbolism. We want to make sure that we that we mention uh, that uh, the Bible doesn't just doesn't just describe uh, the 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 flowers and the fruitfulness of plants, but also describes the the kinds of plants that uh, are enemies of man that that prosecute the curse against us uh, and that don't produce anything useful. And then all of this culminates in Jesus and his work for us on the cross. The tabernacle was constructed of wood and was filled with these blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And that is the place where sacrifice and cleansing and meeting with God took place. And in Jesus, the carpenter, he is hung suspended in the firmament and he's hung on a tree. He's nailed to wood. The good fruit is placed back on the tree and he's clothed in purple and he wears the curse on his head in the crown of thorns. So he bears the curse symbolically and literally for us as he suffers for us in his sacrifice. 
And then this continues on in the work of the church as we continue to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As we take up our cross and follow him, we look like walking trees. And we are also described as trees as we continue to bear good fruit and fill the earth with his glory. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.